Well, there's a man named Glenn Stanton, and he tells us passing through the Kansas City airport and seeing above a dividing wall in the airport there, an amazing thing. What he saw was an infant, and the infant was flying. Now, just, just for a second, and then dropping back down behind the wall. And then it happened again, and it happened again, and so Stanton ventured around the corner just to see what he expected, which was, it was a father who was doing the tossing. Of course, a mother was nowhere in sight. And, and while in Asia, he also saw a Chinese dad doing the same thing with the baby's giggles eloquently communicating delight right across the language divide. So he concluded that, well, child tossing must be a universal thing, must be a global thing. And you, you think about that, what a profound lesson for the baby who's learning to figure out his world, he or she gasps and holds his breath in sheer terror, flying, holy cannoli, the child thinks to himself. First lesson, this world is a very scary place. But then gravity kicks in and the child plummets down into the strong hands of dad. Second lesson, though this world seems scary, it's really safe because dad's there for me. Now, this kind of fatherly psyche confidence and comfort building is a universal thing. Dads teach their children in this way. In fact, George MacDonald, he's the mentor of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, he claimed that, listen to this, fatherhood is the core of the universe. Think about that. Fatherhood is the core of the universe. What I mean by that is there, at, at the helm, at the core of our world, is an ever-faithful, ever-reliable and loving Father who holds this world together. And this gives us a confidence and a comfortable security that enables us to hold ourselves together even when circumstances seemingly leave us free-falling toward disaster. Now that's, that's a real happy and universal truth to consider, that there is a father at the core of the universe. But sadly, for many, it's, it's not a happy personal thing to ponder because for many, the idea of fatherhood isn't a sweet and soothing topic, but instead it's a sour and painful topic because for some, Dad didn't lovingly catch them, but kind of savagely dropped them, leaving them to see the world not as a safe place, but instead as kind of a sadistic place, or maybe less extreme, a very hurtful place. And this is epidemically so in 2023 in our broken and dysfunctional society, and what I want to do this hour is explore this theme, fatherhood at the core of the universe. That's really what's being said here. A father to the fatherless, Psalm 68.5. A father to the fatherless, and a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. We want to look at this passage under three main headings. 
And first will be the eternal pre-creation ideal. Secondly, the painful post-fall real. And thirdly, the wonderful gospel appeal as we consider fatherhood at the core of the universe. So come on with me firstly to the eternal pre-creation ideal. Let's go back before creation. Before the universe was, fatherhood was. And to absolute perfection. You see, this fatherhood is the core, it's the cornerstone on which the world was built. Tevin was on Wednesday night at John's house on the front porch with his bicycle. And the bicycle had on the front wheel these spokes, probably 36 spokes, and they were held together by a hub, a sprocket, right? That, that, that sprocket held together, arguably, the whole bike. It's the core and the epicenter, that sprocket, holding that wheel together or else it's all going to fly apart. Well. That's kind of like what fatherhood is to the universe. Fatherhood is the sprocket of this complex universe that we have. It's the very core. Look what it says there. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. You see, it is fatherhood that holds the universe together. We need to see it that way. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. His high priestly prayer in the upper room, John 17, verse 24, he says this, Father, you did love me before the foundation of the world. You see, before the world was, there was this intimate intertrinitarian union of love between father and son. You see, that fatherhood is the core. It's the epicenter of the universe all emanates from fatherhood. Think how it says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was the Son, the Son became flesh, and as it says in verse 14 of John 1, we saw His glory, the only begotten from the, from the Father. Christ came from the Father. All came from the Father. Verse 18 says, He came he was in the Father's bosom, and then He came into the world. You see, the Father and Son relationship predated the universe. In fact, the Father and Son relationship built the universe. Surely Pastor John has gone through Proverbs chapter 8, and how in Proverbs 8, wisdom is speaking. But what is wisdom? But Jesus, the Word became flesh. The Logos became flesh. And in Proverbs 8, Jesus speaking there says this, I was beside him, that is, my father. I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his earth. See, father and son together built the universe. <laughs> Think of it. We were on our little trip around the island, and there was a, a place we were way up north by Point North, and uh, there were these tourists who were staring in a bush. And I said, what do you see there? They said, a hummingbird, look. And it was a little bird flying backwards. You imagine when the father made the hummingbird on the sun rejoiced and laughed with the father. And maybe the son made a, a humpback whale. I heard there was a sighting in the North Point recently, just this week. Uh, the humpback whale leaps out of the water and the, and the father rejoices in what the son has made. 
together. There was this, there was this joy between father and son. That father-son love fest is what the world emanated from. Genesis 1.1. There was in the Trinity, the, the father-son. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be night and day and heaven and earth and sky and sea and plants and sun and moon and planets and stars and birds and fish and beasts and man and woman. You see, it was all this fatherhood, this father-son love fest that holds all things together, even as it says there in John 17, 24, Father, you did love me before the foundation of the world. God is at the center of it all. God, the Father, there's a Father there. Even 17.5 of John says this, Glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world was. You see, fatherhood isn't merely a, a figure of speech familiar to us, and so God borrows it. I mean, God does that. Uh, Jeremiah says, The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth. Does God have eyes? No. Just a figure of speech. It's an anthropomorphism. But when God says he is a father, that's not just a figure of speech. He is a father. God, the, 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 the father. He's not just adapting to our understanding. He really is a father. So is the Trinitarian God. This father-son relationship is at the core of the universe. Again, look at the text. A father of the fatherless and the judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. And so with these texts I've read to you, this presents to us, reading the Bible, understanding our world, it presents to us a world that is not a, a hubless, sprocketless chaos, vulnerable to flying apart at any moment. This world is, is not a dark, empty, threatening, chaotic, impersonal place. That's what the, the nihilistic atheist says. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And he says if we could all take a trip through time and space and the universe, and if we got to the helm of the universe, the atheist says there'd be nothing there but an empty eye socket. But that's a lie. Because the scriptures tell us to the contrary, what is there at the helm of the universe? There is a Father, our Father, who art in heaven. And, and He, a warm Father, is at the core of the universe. So this makes this universe, this world in which we live in a warm and relational and personal and safe place. Deuteronomy 33 says this, The eternal God is a dwelling place. And for those of us who are free-falling in the adventures of life, we wonder if we're going to crash land. Rest in this. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are everlasting arms to catch us. You see, loving fatherhood, listen, child of God, who frets about all kinds of things, about all the spokes of your life, Flying apart. God is at the helm of the universe. God is a sprocket. He is the core that holds everything together. And when you contemplate this and let this sink in, this truth is heart calming instead of anxiety cultivating. It's mind blowing, universe shifting, soul bracing. Don't you sing the hymn in this place? This is my 
Father's word and to my listening ears. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the Spirit. Don't you sing that here on Barbados? Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Sometimes when I'm anxious, I think I don't believe that there is a Father. This, this, is, this is not some chaotic world. This is our Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands the wonders have wrought. Oh, the hands of a good, godly, holy Father. I had a dad. My dad wasn't a perfect dad. But my dad was a good dad. And I remember sitting in the living room, being rocked by my dad, and he would sing with a deep voice, He's got the whole world in his hands. And I looked at my dad's hands, and he was, he was a good, loving, caring dad. And I thought, if there is a father who's above my father, he's ruling this world, then, then I'm well off being a child of God. And I would watch my dad when I was a little bit older, I was about 11 or 12 years old, he's holding my baby sister, Mary Jo, and he's singing the same thing. And I just thought the kind of steel he was putting into the backbone of my little sister while singing these things into her head. You see, when children realize that they have such a heaven, heavenly father, this infuses the children of God with daring steel in their souls as their flying through the universe. And, and so that makes us to be well-adjusted people, tranquilly at rest people, brimming with joy people, giggling through the flights of life people like that little baby giggling in the airport, flying over a partition. You see, knowing our God to be sovereign, not only sovereign who can do all that he desires, I remember old uh, Jeffrey Thomas said that if God wasn't holy, but he was sovereign, how dangerous that would be. Such a powerful being who would troll for us. But instead, he causes all things to work for our good. He is not sinister as a God. He is holy, holy, holy as a God. Genesis 1, he's an all good God. Doesn't it say in Exodus 33, the Lord, the Lord. What's he like? The gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You see, just children who meditate on that and know their father, they are confident children, risk-taking children, bold children, full of loving kindness children. You see, that's what I mean by the eternal pre-creation ideal, our first of three main heads. But having seen that eternal pre-creation ideal, come on with me now, secondly, to the painful post-fall real. The painful post-fall real. Now what I mean by this is that though the eternally good Father is the creator at the core of our world, that's truth. But that's not what we see today. Look around at fatherhood in life. We today are bombarded with contrary testimony regarding Fatherhood. Think of all the 2023 dysfunctionality in family life. I don't know what it's like on Barbados with fathers, but I know what it's like back in the States regarding fathers. You think of what fathers should be. Fathers are made, Genesis 1:26, in the image of God. And we are too then as fathers. Like I think of uh, 
Oh, our, our, our brother here, who just, his, his wife just came back. He's got little Rennick. Look at that. Rennick is sitting in his lap. And Rennick looks at it. He looks up at his dad. And he sees a face. And, and you know what? Rennick ought to see in his daddy there. He ought to see the image of God. He ought to see a God who is gracious, compassionate, full of loving kindness and truth and justice and righteousness. You, you, look at your wife just turned to you and she, she's thinking someday you're going to have a baby. You know what you are when you get a baby? You have that holy obligation to reflect the character of God as his image bearer every moment of your life. Once that baby pops out of the womb, our first baby came out of the womb, he had these two little beady eyes and they stared at me. I thought, he's going to be looking at me for the next 25 years. He's going to be taking notes. That's a, that's a holy obligation that we have because we are to reflect him. But I was reading recently of a certain counselor who had a client who was really messed up, phobia plagued. And that client told the counselor of an incident in his life with his father and how the father had brought him out when he was about two years old onto the porch. No, it wasn't two, probably four years old. Onto the porch and stood him on the porch. And those railings on the porch and stood him up, and Dad's out in front, and there's a sidewalk, and Dad said, here, jump to me. And uh, the child was uneasy. I, I, I don't want it. I'm afraid. Trust me. Trust me. Jump. Oh. And he finally jumped, and his dad caught him with his hands, and he put him back up there and said, okay. Took one more step back. Okay, now, jump. Oh, he, it's further, Dad. Trust me. And he jumped, and he caught him. He took one more, put his boy back up, took one more step back, said, okay, now. Jump! Little boy confident and bold. He jumps and dad stepped back one further step and the boy fell flat, his head right on the concrete and there was blood. And the little boy said, why did you do that, dad? And dad said, lesson of life. In this world, never trust anyone. You, you talk about maiming someone. You talk about scarring a little boy's view of what this world is like. And you wonder why he was messed up as he became an adult. Because that's what we see. We don't see an eternal pre-creation ideal of fatherhood. We see a painful post-fall reel of fatherhood. And so we see that just like this man grew up scarred and handicapped with a warped view of the universe. You see, this is the workmanship of the serpent who is a liar from the beginning, a murderer, a destroyer. He, in Genesis 3, assaulted the first human father. That snake, snake bit fatherhood ever since. You think of Adam was the first father on the earth, right? Adam had the destiny of his whole family. All of his sons and daughters were right there in his hands. And what did Adam do? He shamelessly let them down. He let them fall, theologically to say. Adam dropped us. The Lord said, in threat, you will surely die. The stakes are really high for you and for your children. And we see that you will surely die, meaning not just physically losing respiration, but there will be the second death. You will not only be expelled from the garden, but you'll be expelled from the presence of the Father, and you will live in outer darkness in the lake of fire, splitting hell wide open. That's what happens when a father drops and lets down 
and doesn't image the character of God. There's high stakes here regarding fatherhood. You know, every subsequent father from Adam has been poisoned with this sin and stumbles onto the same crooked path, emanating lies about God and His world and maiming and handicap and wounding His offspring. Just think of that memorable gallery of fathers, that parade of fathers that marches through the Old Testament. Genesis 3, Adam fell, dropped, blew it, lied. Genesis 4, you got Lamech. Ha! He's this brash, polygamous murderer who boasts to his wife, I've killed a man, a boy, for striking me. And some say that it was his son whom he killed. Why? What a father that was. The parade continues on. No, he's a righteous man. But even Noah, we find, gets drunken. He exposes his grandchildren to sin. Cursed be Canaan, the sin of Ham. Noah actually lied and brought sin into the fatherhood. He was supposed to image God, but his drunkenness didn't. Then Abraham, the 12th chapter. Oh, here's a man of faith. But we see that Abraham himself cowardly endangers his lamb, his bride. Two times he puts her into a Gentile harem, endangering her. And regarding his own son, his firstborn son through Hagar, we see that Ishmael wasn't treated well by that father. We also go on to see how Isaac has a favorite in Esau, the hunter, the athlete, and there's breakdown in that family because of favoritism. And then we see Joseph. Uh, Joseph has the same favoritism issue. He wears his coat of many colors. His dad wasn't too wise in having that kind of a favorite. The other boys hated him. And so there is all kinds of dysfunctionality in that family as well. We finally see that there is a priest who's going to be a servant of God. His name is Aaron. Now, they'll be a good father, right, Aaron? What does Aaron do? He fashions a golden calf. With that kind of example, he misleads Nadab and Abihu to offer up strange fire, and they, imitating their father, are torched by fire coming down from heaven that consumes them. This is bad fatherhood, a parade. Are there no good fathers in the Old Testament? Well, Saul, he's going to be the king, certainly a king will live righteously. And we see Saul's jealousy is sucking him into using his daughters like pawns for his purposes. It's Saul who throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan. Well, David, David would be a man after God's own heart, but oh, David's fatherhood is so pocked with sin. He, he, he's an adulterer with Bathsheba. He's a murderer of Uriah. He's a loiterer with his children Amnon and Tamar. He's an enabler with his other child Absalom and his coup. You see, it's a parade of fallen fathers who maim their children. And I'm not just against the biblical characters. Listen, my mugshot shamefully hangs in that same gallery of failed fathers. Personal testimony in my own life. It was 1987-ish. My four-year-old boy, Jared, was in the basement with me. I had these uh, joists in the basement, and I had tied a rope onto the joists, and I would do my, my pull-ups from there. And Jared would watch me and say, what are you doing, Dad? I'm, I'm exercising. Can I try that, Dad? Oh, yeah. 
So I said, Let, you can hang here. And I, 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 did, I, I did pull a mattress underneath. But I said, let's see how long you can hang. And he hung and I, and I was, I'll time you. And so I turned my wrist. He fell, he slipped through. Miscalculation with the mattress. He hit like a bowling ball onto the concrete floor. And as I'm carrying him and there's blood and I'm running upstairs. And I said, oh, and he says, Dad, you promised you would catch me. And it still makes me viscerally recoil just thinking about what happened. I'm sure it makes Diane recoil too. When I showed her a broken firstborn. He still doesn't sleep very well because he can't breathe through his nose very well. I have damaged and scarred my children through my father. And I will say that I fall in line to that gallery of Adam and Noah and the like. And it's not just by my physical uncoordination. But I, oh, he slipped through. No, they've seen my anger eruptions expressing my selfishness. They've seen me making promises I didn't keep. My children have seen me maybe early on in my ministry mortgaging off or jeoparding my relationship with my children to purchase the approval of my most conservative members. John, don't you ever, don't you ever do that. that you, you make your sons act in exactly the way that maybe one of your most conservative members think they should act because you want them to like the pastor. No, be a man of true integrity and not like me with inconsistency because I know I, spar, I scarred my children in many ways and gave them a crippling worldview in many ways because of my broken fatherhood. And even sitting here, I'm not the only one because I know there are scarred souls sitting here, aren't there? You have fathers who didn't father you as they ought to have fathered you. And there are people sitting in these benches with deep man wounds and woman wounds. You've been inflicted by fallen fathers with maybe abusive discipline. I think spanking is a wholesome thing. He who spares the rod hates his son. He who loves him is careful to discipline him. But there are some who have spanked not with prudence. There have been some here who have been beaten by fathers. There's been sexual abuse and incest maybe. Abandoned by divorce, workaholism, just aloofness. I read recently of a man who said, the memory of my father is he was always grumpy, perpetually in a state of waking up from a nap, it seemed, struck me with his view that he simply wanted to be alone. And you think about the devil in the society in 2023, how he schemes, aiming, flaming missiles at the core of fatherhood as an institution because he wants to make it a laughing stock dumpster fire, right? Isn't that what people look at fatherhood nowadays and say, sperm bank is a better alternative. It's not as dangerous as this, this fatherhood thing. We don't even need fathers anymore. That's what they're saying up in the States. But all of us know we all have an aching pain in our hearts, don't we? We all have a father hunger, looking for a father who will satisfy our yearnings. Doesn't Augustine say, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. We all want a father. 
So that leaves us having seen the eternal pre-creation ideal, the painful post-fall real. Now just lastly, before we go home, consider with me the wonderful gospel appeal. The wonderful gospel appeal. And this comes to neglected, abused, scarred, orphaned souls with a, with a primal ache. Some of you sit here and say, oh, that I had a father. That I had a real father who could satisfy my heart's desires. I think of back in Holland, Michigan. They have annually what's called the Tulip Festival Parade. Goes down 8th Street. There's people along the parade route. 10, 11, 12, 13 deep. Think of a first grade class coming to the Tulip Festival Parade. All the children are by the side. They want to see what's happening on the parade, on the street. And one of the children there has a dad who's present. And the dad picks up his child and puts him up on the shoulders. And the child can see everything from dad's shoulders. But there's another child in the first grade class who's fatherless, doesn't have a dad. He looks up and there's that ache in his heart. Oh, oh, that I had a dad like that. And that can be the heart throb of some of us. Well, the reality is that there's this good news I have about this wonderful gospel appeal, and that is that God has an app for that. God has a plan for that. It says in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, that He might redeem us under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What a plan. What an outrageous plan. It says in John 1.18 that the only begotten, Jesus is the only begotten from the Father who is in the bosom of the Father. Think of how the Son was dandled on the Father's knees from before the creation of the world. Think of that love fest. The Son, the apple of the Father's eye. And what an outrageous plan that the Father would not spare His own Son, but freely give Himself up for us all. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called what? The children of God. What an outrageous plan. This is the Gospel. So just ponder this wonderful Gospel appeal. Maybe a few strands of it. First consider the Father's adopting us. The Father's adopting us. It says in Psalm 68.5, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. This is the Gospel. This is the gospel. Instead of, instead of the world being a predatory world, ever see Anne of Green Gables, anybody? Anne of Green Gables. Oh, and Barbados as well. Not just in Canada. You know, Anne with an E, the orphan in the orphanage. She's sent off to Prince Edward Island, but they wanted a boy. They send her back. She's at the train station. Really, in reality, at the train station, she was going back to the orphanage. She was all alone, and a man saw this pretty girl sitting on a bench in the train station. He took candy out of his pocket and he said, Young lady, I have some candy for you. And she took it. And he said, I have more of that candy in my carriage. And she looked at his creepiness 
And she ran because he wanted to take her and maim her and abuse her and harm her. And frankly, that's the world that we live in. We live in a world that is ruled by the prince of darkness. And he dangles temptations like we read about Samson and this adulterous woman who, who will stalk a man, reduce him to a loaf of bread. The fool Samson! And we're all so foolish. And so many of us, we have tales to tell. of We, we were taken off to a dark cave and there we would be beaten and we'd be in outer darkness gnashing our teeth forever. But instead, there was a Redeemer who was sent with a list of names, all that the Father has given. And he went into the dark cave, and in 1976, he found me in that dark cave, shackled, and about to be thrown into the lake of fire. And he redeemed me. It's like a grocery list. Every one of us came. Let's get the Ritter boss. Let's get that Andrew guy down there in Barbados there. Let's get uh, Nicole over there. And, and uh, all that the Father gives to him will come to him. Of them he shall lose none. This is our Redeemer. This is the Son who came to do his work when he was 12 years old. He says, did you not know I had to be in my Father's house? He came not for a joy ride. He came to do business. And he's in the River Jordan, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 10, 17, He says, The Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It says in John 14, 35, Abba, Father in the garden, would that this cup would pass from me. But then on the cross, he doesn't, he doesn't say, My Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the only time in the whole Gospels where Jesus speaks to the Father and doesn't call him Father. But now he says what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because he's not facing him as affectionate Father at that moment. He who knew no sin had become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was appalling to the Father. Because he was sin. He was facing him as judge, not as father. He was forsaken by the father. He was in outer darkness there on the cross. He was hurled into a nightmare of eternal orphanhood, estranged from the father until it was, it was finished. And then, when he was raised from the dead, he said to his, he said to his friend Mary Magdalene, when she tried to clasp his feet, he says, No, don't touch me, for I go. Listen to this. This is what he said. Listen, listen to what he said to Mary Magdalene. That demonized woman who was in darkness, but he'd come and he'd snatched her out of the dark cave. He says, Do not touch me, for I go to my father. And what did he say? And to your father. You see, Jesus had purchased for her a father. The orphan papers had been signed. The price had been paid by his own shed blood. And in the upper room he says, Peace I give to you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 says, We have the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And Ephesians 2.18 says, 
Through Him, we have access through one Spirit to the Father. And now we are the child, the prodigal child. And now the Father comes with those hands. And He hangs His hands on us. And He kisses us as a Father. And how great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. You ever take a little baby? Some of these babies here. That little baby right there in your lap. He comes out of the bathtub. Right? He's all clean. He was in the mud maybe earlier, but now he's all clean. He's adorable, isn't he? And that's what we are. In the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Yeah, I know where you've been. I know what mud you've wallowed in. But in Christ Jesus, we are all clean. And as he delighted in seeing his son in the Jordan River, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's what he says about you, Jonathan. You. Yeah, the likes of you. He delights in us as a father delights in his son. That's a wonderful gospel appeal that we have here. But just consider fathers adopting us, but also think of our fathers carrying us. This seemingly chaotic and threatening place then, this world, it loses its dread. Because, like it says in Deuteronomy 33.12, God refers to his Benjamin. The Lord says this, Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord, dwelling in security by him, who shields him all day long, dwelling between his shoulders. You ever carry, you ever carry your child on, on your shoulders? Paul, you ever carry on your shoulders? Oh, they feel. When you're on the shoulders, when I'm on the shoulders of my heavenly Father, I'm walking through this snake-infested, feet-shredding, enemy-laden world. I, my, my Father is carrying me. He even says in Deuteronomy 131, The Lord carried you, Israel, my son, through the wilderness as a father carries his son. You know that? Story of footprints in the sand kind of a thing. You know, two footprints and one set of footprints. Where were you, Lord? I, I carried you, right? That's our lot in life. Our Father carries us. And so we look at this vicious world that we live in. Again, this is my Father's world. Let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, He is the ruler yet. Leave this place giggling. Happen out there this week, but leave this place giggling because our Father is causing all things to work for our good. He is at the helm of the universe, and even when I'm seemingly free falling to destruction, there are those eternal, everlasting arms and hands underneath to catch me. Consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, they come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadow. Just about uh, three years ago, we had a little grandbaby son born named Isaac, son of our child Calvin. And Isaac, when he came out of the womb, he was pink, plump and pink. His lungs were to be the size of my fists, but they were only the size of my thumbs. And he couldn't take in oxygen, so he went from pink, he went to pale, he went to blue, he went to gray, and they had to pull the plug on him because he just couldn't live. And I sat there watching Calvin holding his newborn son, 
when my first son was born, it was the best day of my life. But for Calvin, as he held his little Isaac and the air was leaking out of him, it was the worst day of his life. And then you pan back the camera and I'm beyond a neonatal looking through the window and just, I'm just dying inside. I, I can't, I can't do, my hands, I, I, can't, I can't do anything. But then you've got to pan the camera back further because there's this eternal heavenly father. He's watching all of this drama. He's causing all things to work for good. And I trust that on that last day that me, Calvin, and God willing, Isaac will see that he caused everything to work for the good. And it'll take our breath away regarding what he was doing in our lives because our Father is carrying us. And so when we, when we think of life and the things that we go through, we ask our Father, give us an egg. He won't give us a snake. Or we think of our, our life, our school fears, our financial anxieties, our relationship worries. Listen, keep in mind, keep it a picture. I'm riding on the shoulders of my Father. I'm not like the orphan kid at the Tulip Festival Parade. I'm on the shoulders of my father. And he's directing me right where for my good. He loves me more than I love myself. So that idea of there's that the father's adopting us and carrying us. Just think lastly with me, the father's catching us, catching us. Okay, Mark, that's fine for life, but man is destined to die once. Isn't it true? And then comes the judgment. There's a guy in our church named Glenn. And Glenn was diagnosed with cancer. And he had just a month and a half to live. So our church would go over to his house. People would be on vigil all night long because his wife Robin had to sleep at night, didn't want Glenn to die alone. So we'd have people there every night. And I'm, and I'm there. You'd watch Glenn's chest go up and down and up and down. He was, he was skeletal, basically, because he lost everything. And go off again. We thought we'd lost Glenn. So, in the middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning, I said, Hey, Glenn, how you doing? Because he was stirring. He says, Oh, he says, I'm, I'm just really restless. He says, He says, Pastor, sometimes the dragons come out at night. And I wonder what's going to happen to me when, my, when I die. And my, my sins, my sins terrify me. But they pulled out of his pajama pocket this little scrap of paper that said this on it. If, if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe God raised us from the dead, we shall be saved. For whoever believes in Him shall not be disappointed. Because that's all I got. That's all I got. And about three days later, Glenn's chest went down. I was there. He didn't go up again. He died. He was at his house. and He had gone out to the front porch of his house. Because, well, I, I just would say, I, I've never seen Glenn since that day. But in, the, in reality, at his old farmhouse there with that hospital bed there, Glenn actually kind of walked out to the front porch and he, he leaped into eternity. What happened to Glenn, do you know? Because I haven't seen him since then. Do you think Glenn maybe uh, fell into the suffocation of annihilation and he ceased to exist? I think maybe when he, when he jumped off his front porch that he fell and because of his sins he split hell wide open? No. He had a promise from a Father whose every word is yea and amen. And Jesus had said, 
let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. When Glenn leaped off of that front porch of his into eternity, there were everlasting arms, Father's hands to receive him. And I'm an old guy now. I'm Andrew, where's Andrew? Andrew's somewhere over there. Yeah. Man, we're, we're 69, right? 68, 69. I'm, I'm, how did I get to be six? I'm 64 next month. Our time is short. Andrew, what, what hope do we have? You know what the only hope we have, Andrew, is? We held deserving sinners that we have a Father who's faithful to His promises, who won't drop us. There's that song that's sung by a guy named Chris Rice. It goes like this. Weak and wounded sinner. You know what? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The last verse goes like this. With your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. What is that? And fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. And live. So, what great hope we have of having a heavenly Father. You're not, he's a Father to the fatherless. Is the Lord in His holy habitations. He makes a home for the lonely. Let's go to our Father's table.